to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everyone. Welcome to VC Law, a podcast brought to you by the American Bar Association. I'm your host, Gary Ross. Today, we have with us Alexandra Poe, a partner at Hughes, Hubbard & Reed. Alexandra, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for asking me. Delighted. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, Sure. Um, I've spent my whole career representing asset managers and institutional investors who invest in the products that asset managers uh, sponsor. Um, I predominantly, in most of my career, I've represented alternative investment general partners and LPs across the whole spectrum, hedge, venture, and private equity and some bespoke asset classes too. And I was just, and I do work for these kinds of clients in uh, both uh, the corporate setup, you know, fund formation and structuring, as well as the regulatory side of complying with the Advisors Act and other securities laws. Great. Thank you. Well, today uh, we're going to talk to uh, Sandra, if you will. We're going to talk to Sandra about ESG. But before we get into ESG, first, Sandra, I'd like to ask you about your culinary experience. So tell me a little bit about the expertise that you've built up in uh, wine and culinary. Oh, wow. That's great. Oh, what a great way to start. I'm a, I'm a very enthusiastic home cook, and I tend to cook by sense of smell rather than completely by recipes. Recipes are just like an idea. Like a lot of uh, people, I wanted to, I enjoyed wine, but it wasn't always consistent, and I wanted to learn how to enjoy wine, you know, find the good wines more consistently. And I thought, well, you know, I can establish cardamom at 10 paces. And why can't I remember any of the taste factors of wine? So I started taking classes. I sent myself out to the Culinary Institute in California uh, on on some of my vacation time. And it just really got me hooked. And I continued the intensive uh, sommelier uh, program, which is, uh, was kind of the first big um, connoisseurship class that was New York City based. Um, I enrolled myself in the night classes and um, I finished those courses. And that allowed me to take the first and second levels of the exams at the Corps de Master Sommelier. So I also get to say that I'm certified. I don't like to tell people I'm a sommelier because it's really not right because I'm not working <laughs> on the floor in a restaurant and service every day. But um, I've learned a lot and I really love it. And I, I love to share about it. And I uh, before before the pandemic, I used to do um, sort of entertainment and educational events, largely for a Wall Street type crowd around wine. Oh, okay, all right. And uh, when you were taking those classes, were you an associate at a large at a law law firm, or were you already a partner? I was already a partner. Um, okay, so, that explains uh, it. I think it would be tough as an associate getting away on a consistent basis, or at least it was for me. Well, yeah, I mean. You know, I, I always have had like a second thing. So I, I ran two nonprofits during the course of my career as a lawyer, separate at a different time. So I always had some major outside commitment like that. And after I stepped down from the second one, which I was a co-founder, which is High Water Women Foundation, I immediately became aware of these courses at the Culinary Institute. And I thought, well, I'm just going to take the time I've gained back by stepping down from this board to study the classes. And you're so right because the first thing I did 
was I brought my secretary and my main senior associate in my office. And I was like, so here's the plan. They, they thought I was going to tell them that I was leaving, but I was really telling them, I was like, listen, <laughs> I'm going to take all of these classes and they're from six to 10 at night, every night, Monday through Thursday. Oh, wow. And you guys are going to help me make, make sure that the clients have a seamless experience um, by, you know, I, I have a break every night at this time and I will call, you know, I didn't, wasn't going to call my secretary at night, but I also call my associate every night during the break to make sure there was nothing going on that needed attention. But I was really committed. I was excited to be, have the opportunity to do it. I'd been waiting a lot of years to have a chance to study like that in New York. Oh, wow. That's great. Well, I can hear the passion coming through. I'll ask you one more question about that, and then we'll get to the main event. So when do folks know whether a certain year was a good year for wine or not? Like, uh, or do we already know whether 2021 was a good year for wine, or does it take like two or three years before people people know like a particular vintage is superior than the others? And and does it depend on kind of what grape we're talking about, what what wine we're talking about in the region? You sound like you already know what you're talking about. Those are great questions. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there is a sense immediately during the growing season uh, whether the growing conditions have been generally good for growing any particular kind of grape. So some grapes need more cool weather, some grapes need warmer weather, they need rain at certain times or weather changes at certain times. So, so during the growing season, you, you sort of already know whether the basic conditions were there, but you don't actually know until it's in the bottle and you, you know, professionals, you know, the people who write newsletters specifically just about Bordeaux or just about Burgundy or just about California or whatever, you know, they're tasting it over time because sometimes, you know, this is very famous in Bordeaux, you know, Bordeaux, they sell their wines on futures. There's a whole group of great, highly paid critics who will taste it immediately. And they'll say, well, this is going to age this long, this long. And a lot of times the vintages that they think are going to be the best um, turn out not to be the best. And so they're actually still learning why, even very professional people could taste something, you know, right after it's bottled and think it's going to be a certain way, but then there are actually other characteristics that they, that they discounted or didn't give enough weight to the vintage held up or didn't hold up. Um, so it, it's, it's a little complex, but the main, the main things about whether a vintage is good are sort of known when it goes into bottle, because you know how your weather conditions were, and you know what the condition of the fruit was when you brought it into the winery. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much. We could probably fill up the whole time talking about this, but we will move on because today uh, we have we have Sandra on the program to talk about ESG. Uh, tell the audience what ESG stands for. And also, if you could tell us, when did you first hear about ESG? In my own, uh, I mean, my own view is the last couple of years, it's really it's really come on strong. And so it's been a big year for ESG for various reasons, which we'll go into. But uh, why don't you tell folks what the first well, what the three letters stand for. Yeah, so ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. And these are, you know, have become to be understood to be three areas of factors that affect the financial and operational risks of all kinds of securities issuers and all kinds of company businesses. Um, and, you know, for many, many years, it was thought that you know, the only thing that mattered was to maximize profit no matter what, so that shareholders could get as much uh, distribution as possible out of a company. The shareholder primacy model of, of company value 
And, you know, what's happened in recent years is there's been a shift to something called stakeholder capitalism. So instead of shareholder primacy capitalism, there's been really a philosophical shift to something called stakeholder capitalism, where you consider the E, S, and G interests of a variety of types of stakeholders in a business or a company. And it's really just a new way to think about governance and, and value in a company. Oh, okay. So I was running in the park the other day and somebody was talking to this young person was talking to his folks that he was running with them and said he had just got a job in ESG and he uh, he said environmental sustainability and governance. Do you get that much that S, uh, some people think that's the sustainability, but as we know from, uh, you know, we know that social. Yeah, uh, it, it is true. It's confusing because people say sustainability also a lot. And uh, to me, sometimes sustainability is kind of an arcing word, an umbrella word that covers a lot of different factors within ESG, but it isn't the actually the S in ESG. The S is the social for how you're affecting your communities of your employees, your actual geographic communities, your uh, customer community, uh, you know, and various other communities that businesses touch or affect. Um, and in fact, ESG is really is really a development. It, it had a lot of predecessors before we got to this idea of it valuing companies or investing with an ESG lens. Back when I first started practicing many, 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 many years ago now, um, you know, it, actually when I was in law school uh, was the birth of a kind of investing called socially responsible investing. And some companies had mutual funds they considered socially responsible funds. And what that meant back then is that we took certain things that we considered bad companies and we we screen and we don't invest in the bad companies. So usually it was like the sin stocks, cigarettes, firearms, um, some other, whatever other criteria you might consider to be bad corporate conduct or a bad outcome. And you'd screen for if they have bad labor relations or something. So that was socially responsible investing. And then came the idea that there could be a thing called impact investing, which is not just screening out things that were bad, but actually trying to find companies that were changing the world for the good um, by transitioning away from carbon-based energy forms or in a lot of different ways, just creating economic activity in, you know, in um, uh, the third world. We or- do a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 we do a lot of work in Africa. And so oh, impact yeah. investing is uh, around all the time, but a lot of folks don't like to use the word because then they say that some of the portfolio companies think it's a grant and they think if it's an impact investor, they don't have to pay it back. So sometimes people are trying to avoid the word. You are so right. And exactly, that's exactly where you saw a lot of impact investing. And it also, that kind of investing had to be on a relatively small scale for really sophisticated investors like your type of clients. So it'll be in private type investment vehicles, you know, and then it got conflated with yet another idea, which was called like double bottom line investing or triple bottom line investing, where you had the bottom line was the profit, but there was another bottom line, which what what was the social or environmental good that was also produced by investing in this thing, you know, and, and so by having these different bottom lines that we look at these different outcomes, the kinds of investors that could play in those fields, which is what you were just referring to, is like a lot of them were quasi-philanthropic. So foundations making program-related, something called a program-related investment. But then, you know, if a company got a program-related investment from a foundation, a foundation looks like a charity. So, you know, people start to think, I don't have to provide returns. So 
you know, there, there were just like a lot of different iterations as the whole sector of investors who wanted to have their money investments align with their other values in life. There's just been this, you know, really over 30 years, this big arc of development of these different types of concepts of ways to look at and evaluate investing according to your values. And ESG ended up, at least for today, being the inheritor of the mantle of all those other subtypes, which still kind of all exist out there. And ESG is the bigger umbrella because the other thing is that, you know, the kind of investing that you said you were seeing like in Africa and so on, again, they were very small. It was really for super, you know, uh, specific investors and it wasn't broad. And then what happened in the last hmm, 10 years or so, folks started to realize that lots of people wanted to invest this way and, and align with their values and especially to produce, you know, uh, mitigate climate risk. And they thought, well, how can we, what I was called massification, the massification of responsible investing, and how can we create products that everyone can invest in where all products have some reflection of this ESG type lens. And that's kind of the mantle that ESG as a moniker sort of inherited, because now we're trying to create, we say that all types of investments can be looked at through this lens. We're about to talk about the SEC's action earlier this year against BNY Mellon. To your knowledge, were there SEC actions against uh, folks who are doing or claiming to do socially responsible investing and some of these precursors for ESG? Well, do I, I think there were. It's hard for me to remember a specific one, but you know, one of the things that distinguishes funds and investment advisors from operating companies when it comes to SEC oversight is that they not only might they have their offering documents reviewed on the as their you know if it's a registered fund going public you know or going public with their offering but they are also subject to regular examination and so i'm quite certain and, and i was aware of times when sec examinations of socially responsible funds just like sec examinations of all kinds of funds you know would they would at least have a deficiency letter and maybe some kind of an inquiry. I, I don't remember anybody having um, criminal enforcement type case against socially responsible investing, but, you know, through the examination program, every, you know, every it's it's almost unheard of to have no deficiency at the end of your exam. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, having been in the government for a while and doing audits, it's almost like a failure if you come back and there's not a deficiency letter. <laughs> right. That, you uh, didn't my, find something my, my, looking hard enough. Yeah, otherwise, uh, my boss probably would have sent me back out. Um, uh, well, with that, you know, let's talk about this action against BNY Mellon because it made, uh, you know, it made news in our kind of uh, corner of the universe. It was, it was a big deal. Uh, so why don't you tell the audience a little bit about this, uh, uh, this action against BNY? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the action against BNY Mellon was for not following the stated screening process that they disclosed in their offering and marketing and other communication materials. And they said that they were screening all investments that were in some of their funds. Every single investment was screened. And it turned out that they their policies didn't require that. And there was an exception. There was also an exception, um, the opportunity for some of the portfolio management team to have exceptions to that. And anyway, in the end, not every investment was in fact reviewed. And I mean, it wasn't, uh, to my knowledge, it wasn't a DOJ case. It was just an SEC, you know, um, administrative proceeding 
but they did have to pay like a one and a half million dollars of fines and um, you know, improve their policies and procedures. And I think that it was interesting, you know, it probably was a good case for the SEC to bring because one of the points that they'd been making, even before the new rule proposals, um, recent new rule proposals in their annual examination priorities letters and in a risk guidance that they had previously published, the big, the biggest theme of those things had been if you say you're doing something, you need to make sure your policies and procedures and actual practices and controls support that you are doing that thing. Now, and that is frankly a theme that's been true for investment advisors always. And that, you know, there's a couple of other, you know, there've been a couple of other interesting uh, matters that have also happened. One is, you know, sort of overstating the degree to which you have a sustainability or ESG um, investment program at all creating misleading names of your funds, which is the basis of the Goldman Sachs inquiry, which you had mentioned to me before we got on the call. And yeah, tell us a little bit about the Goldman Sachs one, because uh, not as much has been, to my knowledge, not as much has been published about that. Like we know that there's an investigation, but I don't believe there's been a result of it. Do you know uh, what what can you tell us about that investigation into uh, Goldman Sachs's uh, investment management unit? Yeah, I think mostly what the public knows is just that it has commenced. Um, Some of the stories about it say that there is an element to it that's similar to the NY Mellon, where their, in general, their policies and practices don't uh, match up to their disclosures about what they were doing for these ESG portfolios. But there's also an element about having a misleading name. So they renamed at least one of their funds, they actually renamed like the blue chip fund to the ESG equity fund or something. And um, it has always been true that for mutual funds, that the SEC insists that the name of the fund, you know, be consistent with the portfolio. And the names rule is that 80% of your net assets have to be in the types of assets that your name indicates. So if you had female, if you had female founders fund, then at least eighty percent would have to be female founders, but not necessarily one hundred percent. Is that correct? That's right. But I, I can't imagine a female founders fund that would be a public mutual fund because there aren't enough, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, public investable companies uh, with that criteria. But you know, um, if you said it was, you know, uh, tech, if it was a, I don't know. Uh, New York tax exempt income funds, then, you know, at least 80% of your assets have been New York taxes of bonds, for example. So you, you have to have the, and so they've updated the names rule. They um, amend, they proposed an amendment to it recently to encompass ESG type claims. And it seems like maybe the Goldman Sachs inquiry may give them an opportunity to speak more about that to the public and give guidance. Yeah. And there was the other SEC proposed rule that came about. It was sort of interesting. The BNY Mellon, I believe that was May. And then in June, the SEC came out with this proposed rule, Environmental, Social and Governance Disclosures for Investment Advisors and Investment Companies. And at first, when I heard about it, I was like, oh, okay, well, hey, they had the issue of BNY. So they came out with this, but it's like 360 pages. So I'm sure they were working on it before before the BNY action at least was publicized. So I assume this is one of the many things that Chairman Gensler came in and, and wanted to uh, focus on. Obviously, there's a lot that's in here, so we're not gonna we're 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 not gonna go in detail into this proposed rule. Uh, but can you give us an idea of kind of in general what's there and what type of new obligations are you here for investment advisors? Yeah. 
And I just want to say, I don't think that they blindsided BNY Mellon because like I said, the thesis on which they were uh, enforcing against BNY Mellon, which is that if you say you're going to do something, then you have to have policies, procedures, and actions that show that you do the things you said you're going to do. That's old as the hills in terms of advisor regulation. Um, and it was a critical part of their 2021 ESG risk guidance, um, as well as, like I said, all of the several recent years is in examination priorities. So I don't think BNY Mellon was blindsided just because this other rule came out after. But this rule is more about like, Gensler is always really focused on, he, he, when it comes to ESG, he's always been focused on, I want to bring standardization so that the information that investors get is actionable, it's decision-ready information. And, you know, he did that for operating companies. I know you had another podcast on that topic. And this is the one for uh, funds and investments. And what they're saying, what they're trying to do is say, look, there's so much terminology out there and everybody's using different words, maybe to say the same thing. So what we want to do is say that really there are three basic kinds of ESG investment strategies that you could have. One is an integration strategy, which means that you are you, you evaluate your investment opportunities the regular traditional fundamental way, but you're adding on and you know that you're also going to look at ESG impacts uh, of those potential investments and and maybe some people are saying, well, I'm going to do my traditional analysis, but I'm also going to consider what what greenhouse conditions are for particular companies. So if you're just integrating some ESG data into your normal fundamental analysis, that's an integration policy if, or strategy. Then there are ESG focused ones that say this is going to be an ESG portfolio and everything in this portfolio is going to be ESG positive, or maybe we could short the ESG negative things, but there, they also are providing, well, here's a list of standardized terms and a standardized way of reporting which ESG factors you're considering if you're launching a strategy or fund that's specific only to ESG. So that's an ESG type focus strategy. In addition, if you're going to have an ESG focus strategy, they're going to want you to report what your proxy voting policy is and your uh, management engagement policy is, because that's another part of contributing to ESG con or pro-ESG conduct by underlying companies. And the third kind of strategy is an impact strategy, which we discussed before, which is, you know, investing to, in order to produce a very specific impact or outcome, in which case the focus of regulation on funds and advisors with an impact strategy is going to be how do you measure that, you know, what, what is your what is your strategy for producing the impact? And then how do you measure that whether or not the impact happened? Now, if somebody is running a closed-end fund, uh, a closed-end venture capital fund, I mean, and they said that it was ESG-type focused strategy, would they have to rebalance? I mean, what if five years later one of their solar portfolio companies pivoted to coal? Would they have to rebalance them? What is the any obligations there for uh, closed-end funds, which you know the majority of venture capital funds are? Yeah, that's a great question. So. The rule it's the, as proposed is only meant to apply to registered investment companies, business development companies, which are kind of a flavor of venture investing, but they're also registered under the Investment Company Act. Um, registered investment advisors um, and exempt reporting advisors. So many venture advisors, some of them may, many venture capital advisors choose to be eligible for the exemption for venture capital fund advisors. 
Some may be exempt reporting advisors, and some may actually have chosen to be registered investment advisors, you know, sort of depending on what their whole business is. So it may or may not apply to them, but, you know, I would say that I'm sure there is um, an opportunity for a closed-end fund to say, uh, we only consider these factors at the time of investment, and these investments are very illiquid, and we hold them for a long period of time, and that if one of our portfolio companies takes this extreme pivot and is no longer, you know, maybe they would say some kinds of things they might try to do, but obviously it's very hard to do anything. You, you, you would disclose that you're not promising that you can do anything if that kind of pivot happened down the road. But hopefully at this point, most companies will be pivoting toward ESG and not away from it. Right. Certain other global crises are certainly putting some pressure on, on uh, climate considerations. And for the audience, if you want to be thoroughly confused on uh, exempt reporting advisor and registered investment advisor and form ADV and all that, please listen to our podcast with Alexander Davey, where we made it as, as murky as we could, <laughs> because there's a lot going on there and there's a lot of rabbit holes that uh, folks can go down on that. Now, does the proposed rule, does it require every fund? I mean, if you have a registered investment advisor and all that, does it require every fund to make some kind of ESG disclosure, or just if they're one of these and they're like kind of touting ESG to their investors? I think it's more like if you if you want to say something about it, you have to say something about it within this system of disclosure now. And it's really to make sure that the words that companies that are touting ESG are using them consistently across the whole, you know, sort of, you know, uh, sector of the investment world that's focused on this um, and that then their their disclosures are consistent, their record keeping is consistent, and their measurement monitoring of their results is consistent. And, and how do you advise your clients who are, who are launching ESG funds and the like? How do you advise them to stay in compliance, not only with the proposed rules, which you know are just that proposed, uh, but with the current rules and to keep them out of any future uh, action from the SEC or from investors? What type of things do you propose that or do you, uh, uh, do you advise them to do? You know, it's probably a good idea, just like uh, regist- so registered investment advisors are required to have as our registered funds required to have a you know uh, compliance policy that is very comprehensive and meant to keep them in compliance with all federal securities laws. And there's a requirement that you review your compliance program at least once a year. And I would say that if you are going to be an ESG fund and have any ESG, you know, uh, claim any ESG features or objectives or strategies as an advisor or fund, you should also consider having, you know, a periodic, at least annual review that to make sure that what you're doing and what you're continuing to do continues to be in line with what you originally said you were going to do. There are, depending on the type of fund and the time of year, there are opportunities to revise what you're saying, either only with respect to your future products or even sometimes with respect to ongoing products and activity. So, you know, we we sit back and we say, okay, this is the new taxonomy, integration strategies, ESG-focused strategies, impact strategies. Are there words that we're using somewhere that we don't want to use anymore? Where, where do we sit in this little cosmology of uh, ESG funds? And um, was there anywhere where we were using words that no longer fit the way the SEC wants to hear the industry talking about this? And, and then we amend documents. 
Oh, do most of your ESG focused funds, do they have third party consultants who help them uh, with, uh, you, you know, deciding sort of what's ESG positive and, and, and what's not? Uh, mine do not, but that's because my ESG focused clients started out originally to be ESG focused and their whole thesis is ESG sensitive and, but um, I can imagine larger institutional asset managers who are shifting towards ESG claims and practices, who are launching new products, changing the names of existing products like Goldman Sachs. Did, <laughs> um, you know, probably could benefit. There's some really, there are some really great consulting companies out there now who are helping portfolio management staff retool or amplify how they do their company research. I think if you have a really, really big franchise and you're repositioning some yourself, it's probably wise to get, you know, your counsel involved, of course, and also maybe a consultant in the industry. So you can get a sense of how other people are looking at things. And so you're not off the industry standard and you gain new tools and new insights. Now, funds, when they're trying to determine how ESG friendly their portfolio companies are, are, I mean, for some folks, it's pretty easy to tell, right? If it's, if they're helping develop clean water in Chad or somewhere like that, then, you, you, you know, you know, if it's a solar company, then there's sort of a rebuttable presumption there, but, and then some companies, like, you know, could sort of go either way. And so we, we, we have some folks who send a questionnaire out to the portfolio companies and then they want them to, um, you know, fill it out and return it. What do you see? I, I guess, how much due diligence is, 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 is done in your experience? I think the area of the, the types of practices that are out there are really broad and kind of span the whole gamut. But I would argue that if you are going to make ESG claims, especially since they're very much in focus now, but even anyway, just to comply with your fiduciary duty as an investment advisor, you should do due diligence that's more than just getting questionnaires. Because if you send your portfolio company or especially a potential portfolio company a questionnaire, and then they will, you know, they will suss out what kind of answers you want, they may give right. you the answers you want and not the answers you need. And you know, here, here's another thing I just want to say because it actually so. At Hughes Hubbard, where I work, we we just published a book, How to ESG, a uh, resource guide for companies establishing uh, to establish their ESG program. And, you know, the whole time we were writing the book, I really, a lot of conversations that I had with different people started to trouble me because I felt like the whole conversation about ESG was about uh, compliance and whether there was going to be this gotcha mentality from the government and, you know, heaven knows the accounting firms are, you know, they're fully set up already to figure out how to audit and assess and create testing and all this stuff. And I think that you, I just would, I really wanted to, to say, you know, we have to take a step back. You can't just go right to, you know, how is this auditable? How is this reviewable? Um, what are they going to get us for on examinations? If you're really doing ESG, ESG is about trying to make sure that the capital that you deploy in the markets has desirable effects, whatever you decide your desirable effects are, or at least doesn't have undesirable effects, right? So you really have to 
start, give as much time up front to think about what your objectives are and why those are your objectives. And if you're, in, if you're trying to appeal to investors, why your investors have those objectives and what they would want from you. And then, you know, truly and authentically pursue those. Okay. Then when you're truly and authentically pursuing them, then comes the question of what consultants do I need? What are the rules? You know, who, where should I be getting data from? What, 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 um, a uh, guideline and protocol publishers do I need to be familiar with? Um, how can my accounting and auditing firm help me have an, you know, a good and a reviewable and auditable record for things? But if you start with the back end of that, this is a compliance gotcha game or an audit gotcha game, I would argue that there's there probably isn't any way for your actual investment portfolio to pursue the goals. Like you, you, you can't start with the back end. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, Sandra, where can people pick up a copy of your book? Where can they purchase it? Um, it's actually, it's free. It's downloadable oh. off the usehubbard.com website. And um, always appreciate it. I'm reachable on, I'm also, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, Alexandra Poe. Um, and uh, so are many of my colleagues who assisted with the book or co-opted the book. So um, you can follow us there and keep up to date. Um, you know, one of the things that we laughed about is we rushed to get the book out and my business development team were like, why are we doing this in August? Should we should wait now until September? Because we were obviously trying to get it out a little sooner. And I was like, well, we, we can't do that because the world of regu ESG regulation and enforcement activity is moving so quickly right. that literally if we wait, like seven more weeks or five more weeks, the whole, we 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 might have to rewrite parts of the book because things that will happen now is that there are there are rule proposals in the United States, there are adopted regulations in Europe and other parts of the world that are actually coming into effect every you know every few months something new is actually becoming coming into effect, and the SEC is also very well known for bringing a lot of enforcement cases in August and September because their fiscal year end is at the end of September. And so, you know, literally if we wait till September, we could find that we can't bring the book out because we now have to update what we've already written. Um, so there will be updates um, from time to time, but uh, once we'd gotten it to a static point, it was like, now's the time, launch the book. All right. Well, great. Well, uh, you know, quite, quite an accomplishment. Congratulations to you and your colleagues uh, getting that book out. Uh, back to wine. How is 2022 looking for um, uh, for wine? Uh, you know, it's a great question. I, I think I've been my head has been down for the last few months getting the book out. I can't <laughs> say that I'm. And also, we're kind of in the middle of the growing season still. Harvest in most regions is uh, in most northern hemisphere regions is in starts in about September and these, and it may even go to October, but um, so there are still these, actually the weeks we're in are really critical weeks because the fruit is now really uh, mature or maturing or close to mature on the vine. And if there's hail or if there's cold or too much rain, you know, it, so the, these are just extremely critical weeks between now and the end of September, I would say. And so it would be hard really, even, even though I have to say, I, I don't think I've been keeping up, but it, I think it would also be hard to say because these are just such critical weeks almost everywhere in the Northern hemisphere where they're getting ready to pick. 
Okay. Well, we'll hope for good weather. Well, thank you so much, Sander, for joining us today and enlightening us not only as to ESG, but also to wine. Well, thank you for your interest. This was really fun and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. To the listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of VC Law brought to you by the American Bar Association. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.